Hello again, it's Dr. T, and welcome back to Live from 35, the podcast dedicated to keeping our staff at Skodak Internal Medicine and Pediatrics in the loop on the happenings at 35 Empire State Boulevard during the COVID-19 pandemic. First, on behalf of the practice, I wish to express our deepest condolences to Adam and his family. For those of you who might not know, Adam's mother passed away last week. He is extremely appreciative of all the support that we, as his work family, have provided him during this difficult time, and I ask that you continue to keep him and his family in your thoughts over the next week. Let's get started with the update for the week that began April 20th, 2020. First, the celebrity birthdays for this week. April 20th is the birthday of actor George Takei, also known as Sulu from Star Trek, who has lived long and prospered and turns 83. On April 21st, actor Tony Danza turns 69. On April 22nd, actor Jack Nicholson turns 83 and rocker Peter Frampton turns 70. April 23rd is the 43rd birthday of John Oliver. Also turning 43 is wrestler and now actor John Cena. On April 24th, actress Shirley MacLaine turns 86. Barbara Streisand turns 78, and Kelly Clarkson turns 38. And on April 25th, Al Pacino turns 80. This week, we also celebrate the following holidays. April 20th is National Cheddar Fries Day and also National Lookalike Day. I haven't had a haircut in almost a month, so trust me, nobody wants to look like me right now. April 21st is National Chocolate Covered Cashews Day. April 22nd is Earth Day. It's also National Jelly Bean Day and National Administrative Professionals Day. On April 23rd, we celebrate National Cherry Cheesecake Day, and it's also a good day to take a picnic in celebration of National Picnic Day. Now, time for some coronavirus-related news. This week, I thought I would talk about two important medical figures. One you probably know a lot about, and one you probably don't know a lot about, but probably should. Our first figure is the more famous one. You probably know him by his steady demeanor, and his strong Brooklyn accent. He's the guy that many refer to as America's top infectious disease doctor, and the one who lends the scientific heft and facts to the president's afternoon news conferences. And when he's not there, everyone starts to worry that he either got sick, or even worse, got fired. Yes, I am talking about Dr. Anthony Fauci, a man so beloved by so many that recently the National Bobblehead Hall of Fame unveiled that they were selling a Dr. Anthony Fauci bobblehead with proceeds going to the Protect the Heroes campaign to help raise funds to acquire supplies for frontline healthcare workers. In the interest of full disclosure, I have put a deposit on one of these bobbleheads. I hope to get it in July. His official federal government title is Director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, which is part of the National Institutes of Health. He has held this title since 1984 
He also is the chief of the Laboratory of Immunoregulation, which according to what I have read, is actually his favorite and most prized job title. He has advised six presidents on HIV AIDS, as well as our response to disease outbreaks, such as Ebola and Zika virus, and of course, our current outbreak of COVID-19. He did some of the pioneering work on understanding the pathogenesis of HIV infection, as well as a lot of the research on the early treatments that now allow most HIV patients to live with it as if it were a chronic disease. He also was renowned for developing treatments for numerous autoimmune and rheumatologic conditions over the course of his career. For those of us who are internists, we owe much to him as he is one of the main editors of the Harrison's Principles of Internal Medicine textbook, considered one of the foundational works of internal medicine. Our second medical figure is a more obscure person, but no less important to the story of coronavirus. I first learned about June Almeida last week from an article I came across on the BBC website. The medical profession owes a lot to this amazing lady with an equally compelling backstory. As you know, the current pandemic is caused by a new strain from the coronavirus family, a group of viruses that typically cause things like the common cold, but sometimes through mutations and the transmission of the virus between animal species, these viruses have also managed to cause serious outbreaks like the SARS crisis of 2002 and 2003, and of course, the current COVID-19 pandemic. It was the work of Dr. Almeida back in the 1960s that has contributed to our knowledge of the structure of coronaviruses. Born June Hart in 1930, Dr. Almeida was the daughter of a Scottish bus driver. She actually left school at the age of 16. Although she didn't have much of a formal education, she managed to get a job as a laboratory technician at the Glasgow Royal Infirmary in Scotland, and then later moved to London to continue her career. After marrying her husband, Enriquez Almeida, who was an artist from Venezuela, she moved to Toronto, where she became so renowned for her skills with the electron microscope at the Ontario Cancer Institute that she was recruited back to Great Britain. Upon her return, she produced the first images of the virus that causes rubella. In the mid-1960s, she found herself working at a research center run by Dr. David Tyrell, who was studying the common cold. Using the electron microscope, she was able to take the first pictures of what they originally thought was a type of influenza virus. But instead, these viruses, which had never been seen before, had a halo or crown-like appearance. It was the appearance of these crowns, also known as corona, that gave rise to the name coronavirus. She is actually one of the people credited with giving this family of viruses their name. Even though she never went to college, her scientific prowess resulted in her being bestowed with an honorary doctorate by the Postgraduate Medical School in London. After retiring, she actually became a yoga instructor, but when the world faced another viral outbreak in the 1980s, this time HIV, she went back to work and helped take the first pictures of the HIV virus, again, with the electron microscope. Sadly, she passed away from a heart attack in 2007, but her past research allowed scientists to quickly identify the SARS-CoV-2 coronavirus at the head of the current pandemic and use some of the structural information she developed to work on ways to fight this particularly complex foe. Now, a word about testing for coronavirus. 
Testing for coronavirus falls in two categories. There is the testing that has been occurring since the outbreak, which looks for the viral RNA, or genetic material, of the coronavirus. This test is used to diagnose an acute infection. Although at Community Care, we have been fortunate in that we have adequate capacity and materials to test for an acute infection, assuming criteria are met, that isn't true in a lot of other places, even locally. The main conversation about testing you are hearing nowadays focuses on trying to figure out who among us has had the infection already, and therefore the antibodies that might indicate that they are now immune to the novel coronavirus. This testing can occur in a number of ways. The most common strategy right now is a qualitative test. That is, one that tells you essentially in a yes or no fashion whether or not you have antibodies to the virus that causes COVID-19. You will develop antibodies when you have had an exposure and infection, regardless of whether or not you develop symptoms. As our government leaders on the federal and state level try to wrestle with how to safely unwind social distancing while keeping the coronavirus at bay until we get better treatments and a vaccine, they are counting on figuring out how many people in the population may have already developed antibodies to the infection as a key step in trying to reopen our economy. For example, this week, Governor Cuomo announced that random testing of 3,000 New Yorkers would take place to see if the background rate of antibody formation to coronavirus could be ascertained. This is happening in random grocery stores throughout the state, but the rollout has been somewhat turbulent and there are real questions about whether testing 3,000 New Yorkers is truly going to be random, as people may start to head towards these test sites if they get alerted ahead of time where the tests are being performed. Furthermore, as Dr. Musto mentioned on his evening talk on Monday, many ask whether the data from these 3,000 people is enough to provide us with a valid estimate for the infection rate of a state of 19 million people. There are other concerns about antibody testing as well. Some feel that perhaps a quantitative test, that is, one that actually gives an actual numerical value to the amount of antibodies, might be more useful. Right now, scientists do not have a good handle on what an appropriate antibody response level is to determine whether one is truly safe from the virus. And furthermore, we still do not have much data on how long such a response might last. In addition, there are concerns about the reliability of some of the tests on the market. The antibody testing being done by New York State is being run at our state Wadsworth Health Laboratory in Albany, which means that we have to worry less about the integrity of the results because their process has already been vetted by the FDA. However, there are a lot of other manufacturers that have rushed to make tests, and in this current time of crisis, a lot of these tests have not been properly vetted, which makes a lot of people nervous about the validity of the results that this testing may produce. So this is a topic that will be the focus of a lot of attention over the next few weeks as we grapple with these issues. Stay tuned. some news from the practice. Last week, we welcomed back Dr. Leonidas as we increased our clinician team from four members to five. As we start this week, we thank Shannon for her tenure on our inaugural pandemic response squad 
and we welcome back Renee from a long absence out of the office. We are very glad to see her. To update all of you, this past Friday, I laid out a roadmap for the next several weeks in terms of our clinician workforce. As Governor Cuomo has extended his pause executive order until at least the 15th of May, this means that we are not quite ready yet to resume full operations, but that does not mean that we should not be planning ahead. My many thanks to the providers for coming together to work with our management team at the practice to develop a plan that aims to be as equitable as possible. Over the next few weeks, we will be rotating some of the clinicians in and out of furlough to make sure that they remain in tip-top shape and so they can maintain contact with their patients. Each week in this section, I will announce these assignments. For this week, Renee will be joining myself, Dr. Leonidas, Dr. Gildersleeve, and Alyssa on our pandemic response squad. We continue to be ably supported by Mary Griswold, Denise Coons, Tanya Johnstone, Don, Nikki, as well as Denise Leggett, and of course, the notorious Biolo herself, Betsy Asuka. By the way, a shout out to Don, who got up early last Friday to make a delicious cake for everyone to enjoy. As some of you return to the office, you will notice some changes. This is part of the detailed plan that our CEO, Dr. Parikh, has asked the corporate coronavirus response team to implement. This plan is entitled Moving Forward Safely. We will be taking steps to prepare for the gradual resumption of what will be the new normal for us for the foreseeable future. In addition to the requirement for all staff to wear masks when on premises, all patients and any visitors to the office will be required to have a facial covering as well. Also, we will be screening the temperature of all people in the building, including patients, visitors, and employees upon entry to help prevent a possible exposure. One part of our moving forward safely plan will be to try to alleviate the scheduled gridlock we created as a consequence of moving patient appointments that have been scheduled in March and April into May and June. The first step in addressing this issue was completed this past Friday as we finalized the furlough rotation schedule for the providers. As that is now established, we have started working on transitioning some of those displaced visits to telemedicine and phone visits that we will try to do now over the next few weeks. For the remainder of the year, we are asking those patients who have physicals to reschedule them for 2021 or if they have a clinical need or chronic medical issue that requires follow-up, we will try to do those visits either now in a remote fashion or change them to a shorter in-person check later in the summer and fall to make sure we have adequate appointment space moving forward. For any Medicare wellness visits that we have scheduled for May onwards, we will also try to see if we can fit those in now as our patients, both young and old, gain more confidence in doing their visits remotely. Finally, we will be trying to limit school-age physicals this year to only those grades that require them by state education law, assuming that those laws are not relaxed during the next several months. Some statistics from last week, there were a total of 387 billable encounters, which is a steady pace compared to the week prior. Finally, we were most happy to see Adam and meet his father last Friday after they paid us a visit to personally thank us for all of our support during what has been a difficult time for them over the last several weeks. All of you did what you do best, which is to take care of each other in difficult times.
Some reminders for all of you out there. If you're interested in participating in the encouragement and support group WebEx sessions that are being held by the Community Care Behavioral Health staff, please see the group text that will be sent out with the announcement of this week's Live from 35 episode release. There are two sessions weekly, one held Wednesdays at noon and also Thursdays at 5.30 p.m. Each session lasts for 45 minutes and is led by Dr. Stone, the director of the CCP Behavioral Health Program. Also, remember that you are welcome to listen to the WebEx talks that Dr. Musto gives on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday nights at 5.30. Again, please consult the login information that I will send out on the group text announcing the release of this week's podcast. For all of the staff, make sure you and your family and friends continue to follow the CDC recommendations and now Governor Cuomo's executive order that encourage the wearing of a mask or other facial covering in public. Please limit your trips out of the house to only those trips that are essential, and remember to practice social distancing as best as possible. Now, we've come to the end of this week's edition of Live from 35. If you have anything you want addressed or announced on next week's edition, please let me know. Until next week, stay safe, stay well, and take care of yourself and look out for those who may need help. And to help take us into next week, let's end with an upbeat song again. For this week, I have selected the song September, sung by the legendary group Earth, Wind, and Fire. Maybe by September, our life will be a little closer to the normal that we knew prior to March. Pop into any Filipino wedding, or perhaps any wedding, and I'm pretty sure that you'll hear this song, mainly because it has a catchy, happy beat. And in case you were wondering, yes, I did ask for this song to be played at my wedding back in 2006. I thought it was very appropriate since her wedding was in September. Anyway, catch you next week on Live from 35.